Hello and good day. The main topic today is augmentation, not of a body part, but of plastic surgery, of the whole practice. How to use emerging technologies to improve diagnosis, treatment, prediction, and the general workflow. There are a few examples, and I'll go with the use of augmented reality for this episode, and we will be exploring more of them as we go along. Hello and welcome to Measure Twice, the podcast for professionals in plastic surgery. I am your host, Mubishir Chima, and I am super excited to bring you this podcast. But first, a disclaimer. This is a professional podcast and only intended for professionals in the field. It presupposes a significant level of knowledge and uses a lot of medical jargon, which makes it unsuitable source of information for general public. Any comments made here do not and cannot replace the evaluation and judgment of your medical professional. Please avoid self-diagnosis by search engines. This conversation is based around a paper from St. George's in London about the use of HoloLens device from Microsoft to visualize CTNGO of DF flap superimposed in real time over the patient. It was a proof of concept study involving two patients. As you know, the CT NGO images are in the DICOM format, which gives it a set of pixels, which are then displayed on a screen. These pixels or the image formed by them, or even the DICOM format has no notion of what is fat, what is fascia, or what is a named blood vessel. It is the human looking at the screen who goes, aha, this is the rectus muscle because it is in the anatomical location of the rectus abdominis. And here must be the inferior epigastric vessel, which I can follow from one image to the next. This idea of continuity, which comes so natural to us and is obvious to us humans, but the DICOM format is agnostic to it. So if you want your virtual reality device to display these things, I don't know, red of an artery, blue for a vein, yellow for adipose, red brown for muscle, the VR set needs to know what is the structure of interest and what is just a space filler. This process of identifying and labeling structures of interest, in this case, on a DICOM image, is called segmentation. And at least at the time of this recording, yields better results if done by hand. So labor intensive at this stage. This does yield a 3D mesh. And if you've ever been a gamer or walk past one arguing the merits of their favorite console, you'll know that there is something called a polygon count. In practice, these polygons are just triangles for reasons of efficiency, but we call them polygons nonetheless. The more detailed your DICOM image is, the more number of polygons are needed and therefore larger the 3D mesh size in terms of storage area. It has more resolution, but that resolution may be a lot more than what you want, which then makes it more difficult to load and manipulate in your VR device and not to mention, carry a lot of redundant and not so useful information. 
which of course also takes precious battery time. So that 3D mesh is simplified, either by smoothing out the extra detail manually or letting the software make an educated guess, a process called decimation. Note that all these steps are needed before the 3D image is loaded onto the VR device. In this paper, the authors have not mentioned the exact software they used, but once the 3D image created from the DICOM data is displayed by the VR device, it still needs to be aligned to the real patient and possibly scaled as well. The authors use the umbilicus as a common reference point to align and orient the real and the virtual and have reported good feedback. On a deeper understanding point of view, these VR headsets are called mixed reality, augmented reality and other names. And yes, there is an interesting discussion to be had around apparently trivial concepts like what is real. Practically speaking, they either allow you to see through unmediated like the Microsoft HoloLens and superimpose a virtual layer on top of the real world or may offer an immersive experience like the Meta Oculus. Of course, Apple's upcoming Vision Pro device transcends these differences by providing a mediated view of reality by capturing it through the device's sensors and then projecting them for the user who is technically in an immersive environment. In order to keep your footing on the ground, because over time we expect more and more of these headsets and more and more merging of the continuum between what is real and what is virtual. In order to keep your footing on the ground, whenever you see a virtual reality device, ask yourself the following three questions. How much do we know about the world being displayed? Uh, I, is it being modeled completely, partially, or left unmodeled? Secondly, how realistically are we able to display it? That is the fidelity of simulation. And thirdly, what is the extent of the illusion that the observer is present within this world? As in, if the, is the observer looking from outside into this VR experience or are their sensations in sync as if it was all real? So all of your devices, that they fall along somewhere along these spectrum of these descriptions. Plastic surgery certainly has a lot to gain by using such virtual reality devices. But as you've just noticed, there are many steps for what is a fairly basic use case. So not quite a bicycle for the mind just yet. Skimming through the journals, Kyung Hyun Min et al. looked at perfusion of DF flap. The aim was to correlate the location of perforators and quality of any midline crossing vessels with the size of flap gained from contralateral side. 143 patients, perforator selection by CT and geography. The quality of midline crossing vessel was categorized as a categorical variable based on whether it was not very visible, possibly there or definitely there. And 
the size of contralateral flap was measured as the transverse length from the midline. Authors conclude that the quality of midline crossing vessels correlates with more flap size from across the midline. But when I look at the numbers, to me it looks like that yes, there is a 10 millimeter increase in contralateral flap dimension, but the standard deviation for that measurement is 20 millimeters, suggesting a considerable overlap in measurement from different groups. So it surprised me to see a p-value of 0.0002. Maybe I'm not just updated on my maths as well as I thought I was. Simeon Hall et al. reviewed their 10 years data of short scar mastopexy augmentation using a superiorly based pedicle. 1,217 patients, 39 months of mean follow-up and a revision rate was 3.8% for primary and 10.4% for secondary cases. A quarter of revisions were more than two years post-op and 16% were more than six years after. The mean implant size was 383cc but ranged from 170 to 1000 cc. Some very good points in preoperative planning about explaining the upper pole position to the patient and that much of the implant volume will go into the upper pole and not into the bracca. So that may not change. They use the upper pole as their starting point, which is at or up to a centimeter below the level of manubrium. I presume they mean manubriosternal joint, aka the angle of Louis. They've noticed that their patients prefer a top-heavy look, that is, in contrast to the Maluchi configuration of 45% above and 55% below, these patients prefer 50-55% to 55 of volume above the NAC. And looks like the authors make the final markings preoperatively as opposed to tailor tacking, which may be because the implants are submuscular and the skin markings may be less likely to move. And uh, submuscular placement of implants are expected to help the volume as well in upper pole. And the authors have described technical refinements to improve the results, like preserving the packed fascia and limited lateral dissection for a snug implant fit and for preservation of lateral muscle attachments. The technique is very well described and if you want to have a look, well worth reading the author's original words. And it does give me a vibe of all Findlay with emphasis on upper pole, the pedicle choice based on the vertical lift needed for the NAC, as well as strategic skin undermining, etc. See what you think. Then is Rod Rodick's uh, paper on the techniques to straighten the nasal septum. Again, a very good read from the maestro of Del Dallas Rhinoplasty. A paper from Japan about the prophylactic value of adipose-derived products for prevention of radiation-induced injury. It was tested in a mouse model using human-derived adipose tissues, which was either centrifuged fat or stromal vascular fraction prepared with collagenase agitation, or it was microfat, which was centrifuged fat passed between two syringes via a micronizer. 
on a standardized area of skin, they created a wound only or radiation injury only or radiation with each of the three types of fat track products. At day 15, stromal fraction and micro fat wounds heal fully, just like areas of no radiation. Unprocessed fat was a little slow to heal, but better than nothing. At six months, all three fat products had same dermal thickness as that of skin which had received no radiation. The subcutaneous fat didn't recover as well as control, but having some fat product was again better than nothing. Though unfractionated fat was marginally better. Similarly, fatty layer fibrosis was better with a fat product than without it. And it didn't matter exactly which. And we'll come to a similar sounding difference or no difference between different uh, fat varieties shortly in a different paper. Pessinleoglue et al. compared skin microneedling either alone or in combination with cupping therapy. You know cupping therapy, the original topical negative pressure therapy or the original Brava technique. Anyway, in this study, they used a mouse model to, to compare control with microneedling once only, microneedling three sessions at three uh, weeks intervals versus microneedling and cupping once versus microneedling and cupping three sessions at three weeks intervals. They found both the average epidermal and dermal thickness was highest in microneedling and cupping once session, but not in the three time session. The amount of type 1 collagen increased the most in microneedling alone, and so did the ratio of type 1 to type 3 collagen. In another fat-derived products study, Sawai et al. from Japan used stromal vascular fraction or microfat placed inside a nerve conduit and evaluated their regeneration potential, well, healing potential to be more precise. Uh, they found better clinical recovery, electromyography and histological cross-linking in the nerve gap in case where fat fraction had been used. Yes, it was a mouse model and the defect created was 5 mm only. And I find myself agreeing with Roger Wickstrom's recent comments about translation of basic sciences that humans are not large rodents. Nevertheless, this paper has merit. I mean, there are people who put tissue glue in nerve repairs as well, come on. So maybe these things work by preventing the collapse of the conduit tube, which conceivably can crowd growing axons and increase the chances of misdirecting them. And that's about it for this episode. Thank you very much for joining me. Stay safe, smile, and keep stitching.